Yeah. Great job, Summer. Great job. We, uh, we're in this countdown series that we've been in for a little while, and we're, we're counting down to this, what's going to be a really dark place and a really dark day on a, on a Friday. And uh, speaking of getting into the inner workings of someone's mind, I've been reading Jim's book this week. Anybody else? It's a scary place in Jim's mind, isn't it? To see it on print, it's like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And it, what's been really, really cool about it is uh, I, I've been reading some stories that he tells in the, that, that book that I haven't heard in a long time. Specifically, he tells a bunch of animal stories in, in his book. If you haven't read it yet, you gotta go check that out. And it reminded me of a moment in my life that involved an animal. It was actually when I was about seven, eight years old. I lived in Dallas, Texas at the time. My dad flew out to visit me. And this is one of the few memories I have of me and my mom and my dad doing something uh, uh, together and so I asked could we go to this wildlife park they had this wildlife park in Dallas where you could actually drive through it and feed the animals and so we had this close encounter with an ostrich and I don't know if you've ever seen an ostrich but they're terrifying creatures they they look like something out of Jurassic Park and so so we're driving through and we're, we're feeding these animals they, they just get these g- generic pellets that all the animals eat I don't know what it is in there it's just it's candy or something for animals they all like it and so we pull up to where everybody's feeding the ostriches I guess that's plural for ostrich ostri whatever we 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 hold the we hold the buckets out the window and ostriches don't have teeth and so what they do is they peck violently at something and sling food to the back of their throat that's the way they eat so when you hold a bucket out a car window it becomes really difficult to hold on to the bucket as they are just hammering away at the bucket and they're slinging this feed all over the place so it sounds like a cool experience to feed an ostrich it's actually quite terrifying and so so what we decided was let's move on to something else and so we 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 bring the buckets into the car now here's the thing ostriches have been blessed by God with a really long neck and so this ostrich just sticks his head inside the car and my mom is holding this bucket and it's just going crazy slinging feed all over the inside of the car and this is like the greatest moment of my life I am laughing hysterically there's an ostrich inside the car this is this is great my dad who rented the car doesn't find it so humorous and so he's like we need to we need to get this ostrich out of the car he's making a mess all this so we so he starts to roll up the window and then realizes he's going to decapitate an ostrich which is probably a pretty expensive thing to do and so he decides not to do that so we hold the buckets out the window get the ostrich's head out the window then quickly roll up the windows and we think we're done with the ostrich the ostrich is not however done with us because the ostrich then hops onto the hood of the car I kid you not, it's like, you know, staring at us with these wild eyes and begins to violently peck at the windshield. I mean, hard, like we're going, he's going to, he's going to break the windshield. He starts pulling the windshield wipers off the car. And keep in mind, my parents have been divorced for about seven, eight years at this point, And my mom is laughing hysterically because I think for her in this moment, whatever pain and suffering she perceived that my father caused in the course of the divorce, he's getting some of that back, right? <laughs> right now in this moment God is on her side and so she's laughing I'm laughing and all my dad can do is yell I didn't get the insurance and so so, I'm sure there's insurance for that anyway but but he has this decisive moment it's in psychological terms known as fight or flight right where where you come to a moment where you decide you're either going to continue into the fight or you're just going to run and my dad decides to run and so he he hits the gas pedal and we go forward and the ostrich goes tumbling over the top the ostrich was fine calm down And we just take off. And what I want to look at tonight, today, is I want to look at that moment in life where you do have to make that decision. You do have that moment where fight or flight kicks in 
And we're going to see that happen with a few different people as we explore our countdown series today. Remember last week we, we looked at Wednesday where Jesus was teaching some Greek guys by speaking their language and he was quoting this really well-known saying when he said this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what Jesus is doing there is he's pointing out something paradoxical about nature itself, which is that sometimes death brings forth life. Sometimes it requires death to bring forth the life of something else which of course is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish when he hangs on a, on a cross in a couple, couple days. Then he gives another paradoxical statement when he says this, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So there it is again. There's a moment where you have to decide, do I desperately try to hang on to something or do I let go of it for the sake of taking hold of something better and push further into the fight? See, the Greek guys that Jesus was speaking to on this day understood everything Jesus was saying in the context of initiation. He was quoting something they had heard over and over and over again. And the process that they were familiar with was this process of initiation where a boy goes from boyhood to manhood, the process by which a boy goes into something, now hang on to all these phrases, into something painful and difficult and hard and trying. And in that process, something will be lost and something else will be gained. And through that process, a boy is told, now you are a man and you're given responsibility. You're given something heavy to carry. I heard someone say once that men are a lot like trucks, they drive straighter with a heavy load. We're meant to carry a heavy load. We're meant to have responsibility and without it, men go in a lot of really bad directions. See, every man and every, every woman, every person is born asking a couple fundamental and basic questions and those questions go like this, who am I? And the second question is this, what am I supposed to do? Who am I and what am I supposed to do? So when a boy becomes a man, when he goes through initiation, there are at least two major things that are a result of that. One is he receives his identity. You are now a man. You've passed from boyhood to manhood. And two, he's given a responsibility. And these are really, really key and these are fundamental and it's going to take something hard and it's going to take something difficult. It's going to involve loss. It's going to eat. The process itself is even going to feel deathly to get to that place where you receive your identity and your responsibility. And to be honest with you guys, we've been talking about this initiation thing. Jim and I have been talking a whole lot about it. We've been reading a lot about it and processing with a lot of different people around, around the office about it. It's really, as I've been studying this, it's helped me understand myself even better. It's helped me understand like significant chunks of my life. It's helped me understand why I've done the things I've done and not done the things that I haven't done in my life. And a whole lot of big things and little things in my life start to make sense when you start to understand this. Because to be honest with you, my entire life is far back as I can remember, like rewind the clock as far as my memories go, I have always had this intense desire to put myself into difficult, scary, painful places and see whether I can hack it or not. To see what I'm made of, to see if I can succeed and see if I don't succeed, see if I fail, see if I don't fail, whatever it is. And I have consistently and constantly done this my entire life. Little things, big things and everything in between. Like all of a sudden second grade makes sense to me. Second grade, we had this like jogathon thing where we had to like fundraise and then run laps around this building like all day long. And they made me stop because it was time to go home. I just kept going and kept going and kept going. Field day, fourth grade, all of a sudden makes sense because I hold the wall sit record in fourth grade in central Kentucky because I thought sitting against a wall was better than going to class. I don't know how long I sat there and endured the pain in my quadriceps, but I just kept going. It wasn't even always physical. Fast forward, go to, go to college. My last semester of college all of a sudden makes sense. Why did I take 20? 
22 hours of class, work full-time on the weekends and be engaged to my future wife, Allie. How did I do that? I just wanted to see if I could do it. I was bitter at life by the end of the process, but I somehow survived it. it all of a sudden, the reason I got into running and doing half marathons and marathons and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden trying to train for a triathlon, which I've tried to do twice and failed because turns out you have to be able to swim to do that. Uh, not drowning is a prerequisite for doing doing a triathlon. I, I can't swim without drowning, so I, don't, I, I haven't been able to succeed in that one. It's why I love CrossFit. You push into this dark, terrible, lonely place, and you come out the other side better for it. It's why I started training jujitsu. I needed to put myself in an unfamiliar, scary, dark territory and see what I was made of. And here's the thing. I'm 34 years old. I'm not 12 years old anymore, yet I keep doing this. So much so that a couple, couple months ago, after doing jujitsu for all of like four or five months, I entered into a tournament. I just go, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? And I did that with a couple other guys in this, in this church. And it was really, really interesting because on the back end of that tournament, I learned so much through that process. And hang with me on this because whether you're into martial arts or combat sports, it does not matter. The lessons I learned through this tournament are life lessons that if we'll pay attention, we'll all learn them and we've all probably learned them in one way or another. You'll start nodding here in a minute. So I entered this tournament and I, to be honest with you, I was pretty calm about it. I wasn't super nervous about it. I got a lot of other things going on in my life. So this was just kind of one thing, one fun thing to do on the side. And I wasn't worried about the intensity of it. We trained really, really hard across the street all the time. I wasn't worried about, about how intense it was going to be. I wasn't even afraid to lose. I'm hyper competitive and of course I wanted to win, but I wasn't afraid to lose because jujitsu trains you to lose. You lose all the time in order to get better. But, but here's what happened. My, my, my instructor, my coaches, my friends who are fighters and into this scene and all that kind of thing, they all told me the same thing in different words. They all basically said, Scott, listen, when you get in there for your first fight, here's what's going to happen. You're going to experience this thing that scientifically is referred to as an adrenaline dump right? So it's the way your body responds to a stressful situation. It's called fight or flight, right? And so it can become really counterproductive because what you end up doing is you expend a lot of energy and worry and anxiety. And then when you get into the fight, you can't actually perform because you've wasted all your, all your energy. It's an actual physical biochemical change that occurs in your, in your body. And so you see this happen with people before fights and before contests. Sometimes when they, they strut around, they yell and they scream, at their opponent they jump up and down that's someone who's terrified by the way uh, that's someone who's expending all kinds of excess energy that's not necessary because you're not even in the in the fight yet everybody told me this is what would happen to me and I arrogantly did not believe them I arrogantly looked back at all these experts in my life who've done this for years and went no I hear what you're saying but it won't happen to me because my perception of it was that this occurs because you're performing in front of a bunch of people you're in front of a bunch of people and that makes you really really nervous and then you have the adrenaline dump where I felt like I had a distinct advantage because of this I do this all the time I'm in front of a bunch of people all the time so I thought that won't that won't happen to me and so I wasn't really that worried about it so I entered the tournament and hands down I have the scariest corner of anybody in the tournament I have all my professional fighter friends I've got black belts in my corner I got all these guys in my corner who are just accomplished in the fight game lesson number one you go into the fight alone doesn't matter how scary my corner is Vinny wasn't going with me when I had to step onto that mat my friends were not stepping onto that mat with me. It was me against another person. That's it. They all stayed in the corner. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter how scary my corner is. I got to go out there and fight this fight by myself. 
So I do, I go out there and the first match happens and ref says go and I don't know how long into it. Seconds feel like hours in this situation, just so you know. And so at some point early in the match, I get a double leg takedown. And I think as, I think as I'm doing it, this is great. I'm getting a double leg takedown. I'm scoring some points. Problem is I put my head in the wrong position. So this guy gets what is affectionately referred to as a guillotine choke on me. Uh, guillotine being the device that cuts off your head, which would be much less painful and much quicker than what this choke actually is. And so I end up on top of him on the ground, off the mats. We go through the tables and onto the concrete. So my head is on concrete. He's wrenching as hard as he can on my neck. And because we're out on the concrete, the ref decides we need to stop, stop the mats and reset these guys back in the, in the middle of the, of the mats, which seems like a good idea. So he comes over and he stops us and he puts us back in the middle of the mats, but we have to reset in the same position, which means I I have to willingly put my head back into this choke, which was by far the worst moment of my athletic life. And so, so we reset and he immediately starts wrenching as hard as he can. And there are at least two occasions where I literally, I remember thinking I should tap. I have a wife, I have children, I have a job, I have responsibilities, I need to survive, I, I should tap. And then in one moment, every vertebrae in my neck popped in order like a piano, just like that. And I thought, you know what, I should probably tap. And I even remember having my hand out ready to do so. And for some reason, I didn't. And then at some point in the match, again, seconds turn into days, I, I get out of the position uh, I'm on top now and I score some points, but I notice something. My arms don't want to move. In fact, they feel like they weigh about a thousand pounds each. My legs are unresponsive. My breathing is uncontrollable. My vision has become tunnel vision. I feel like all I can see is like through a pinhole right in front of me. My mouth is dry. My body is weak. The adrenaline dump has happened. I quickly try to rush to another position. The guy sweeps me, ends up on top of me, and we finish the match with him on top of me and as he's on top of me I remember distinctly thinking to myself I, I don't even care about winning anymore you know what I cared about survival it, you, you know what else I cared about winning left the equation and to be honest with you I just wanted it to be over <laughs> match ends I don't quit but he wins by points and the reality is simply this I didn't tap I didn't quit but I know precisely the moment when I quit I know the moment when it was no longer a fight anymore. I just wanted it to be over. I just wanted it to be done. And so I walk off the mat and guys high five me. I stumble off the mat. Guys high five me, give me hugs, tell me did a great job getting out of that guillotine. What, you know, that took a lot of strength, whatever, all this kind of stuff. And then I walk over and I hug my friend Vinny and I, I sit minus the expletives. I say, I cannot believe how tired I am. That was only six minutes. And he laughs and he looks at me and I'll never forget these words. He looks at me and goes, now you know. Lesson number two, there are some things you can only learn through experience. You learn that lesson in life? Yeah. See, those guys could have told me until they were blue in the face and I wouldn't have believed them. And I don't know how to explain this to you any other way, but I walked onto that mat one person, I walked off the mat a different person. Something happened while I was out there. I learned something that you can only learn through experience. And here's the thing that we wanna avoid so desperately in our culture, pain is one of the best teachers. It is. Pain is one of the best teachers. Pain is a, is a gift. And here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a coach. I've told you guys this before. I, I coach a lot of youth sports, lots of different sports, and I've coached all different ages and stuff like that. And so I've gotten the opportunity over the last several years to witness a phenomenon in our culture known as helicopter parents. You know what I'm talking about? 
You'll, you'll see this at playgrounds if you, if you pay attention. You'll see it in sports. I see it in sports all the time. Well, what that means is this. You'll see a, a kid get hurt or injured in a game or at a playground. I see it in games and practices all the time. And before the kid has the opportunity to process the pain, assess the situation, and make a decision as to whether to get back into the game with their teammates or not, this parent who's been hovering around all along swoops in and rescues the child pulling them out of the game or pulling them out of the practice and at worst removes them from the game for the rest of the day thus teaching their child a lesson when things get hard you quit when things hurt you tap out you run when things get difficult you leave your teammates behind and you fend for yourself I see it happen all the time there's some other things in our culture I could point to. Do you remember how playgrounds used to be? If you were, if you were born in the 90s, you have no idea what I'm talking about. So just listen, all right? But if you, if you were born 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, you remember all? Okay, so we used to have, there was, no, there was no spongy, soft surfaces. There was no plastic. We had an 18-foot tall steel slide with jagged, rusty edges that if you were stupid enough to go down in the middle of the summer in shorts, you would leave your flesh from your hamstrings on the slide and you learn not to do that anymore. Playgrounds used to be different. When I was in fourth or fifth grade, we had this great playground at my school back in Kentucky and we had this swing set, like old school sling, swing set, like just rusty old chains. You know, there was no plastic around the chains. You had to get a tetanus shot if you wanted to survive afterward. And then what you could swing as high as you wanted and if you all swung too high, the thing would actually rock up on two legs and settle back down. You know what I'm talking about? You remember this? And, and we had this, this fence row by the swing set with these huge pine trees that hung over the fence row. And so we, if we swung hard enough, we could swing up into the pine trees. Some of you, you know where this is going? Yeah, you could, you could jump out of the swing, jump onto the limb, and the limb would just sway you down to the earth really, really slowly, and you could just kind of bob up and down. It was awesome, unless you missed the branch. Like my best friend Jonathan did one day. My best friend Jonathan, we're swinging, he jumps off into the, he misses the branch, and he lands on both arms, breaks both arms and has to be in casts like this for six weeks and we made fun of him mercilessly because his mom had to wipe his butt for six <laughs> weeks but you know what he learned that's old school you learn that way some of you I know I get the emails you think I'm way over top and not politically correct enough so let me let me give you some journalistic evidence all right to settle you down that I'm actually right okay um the, the Atlantic Journal put out an article recently with this picture on it, which I love. It's called The Overprotected Kid. And it's a really, really long article, but it's worth the read because what it actually traces is the history of playgrounds. And so it, actually in the 80s, we started to sue the manufacturers of playground equipment because our kids were getting hurt on playground equipment. And so we started creating these sissified versions of playgrounds that we have now with, with all the sponges and stuff everywhere and bubbles and unicorns and all those things. And so now the interesting thing is what they've been able to track is the amount of emergency room visits due to playground accidents from the 80s and before to now and guess what kids are kids are less safe now you know why because they have no ability to assess risk they think they can jump off of everything and have a soft landing and they can't guess what in life sometimes you land hard and you need to learn that when you're five, not when you're 35. 
See, there are some things you can only learn through experience, but when we don't allow the process to happen, we cheat kids out of the learning and we cheat ourselves out of the learning that occurs through difficulty and through pain. Lesson number three, there's a lot to be gained through loss. Some people think I'm really over the top with my disdain for our everybody gets a trophy culture, but again, again, we, when we tell everybody everybody's a winner all the time, guess what? Nobody's a winner, and that actually cheats people out of the experience of losing, which is a really valuable lesson in life. My son Eli, when he started wrestling, the worst thing that could have happened happened. He won his first five matches. When he got to match number six and he finally lost, guess what happened? He melted down because he thought that he was indestructible. He thought that he would win every time. Better to learn when you're five how to lose than when you're 35 or 45 or 55. Jesus said it well, whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is saying the same thing. If you care too much about this life now, you think only about yourself and self-preservation, you live only for yourself, you know what that's not called? Life. That's just called being selfish. Think about this. Think about the panorama of human history. Think of all the people we label as heroes. Think about all the people we like to emulate and hold up and go, that's the life you want to live. That's the kind of life you want to have. Those people all have at least one thing in common. They lived for something bigger than themselves. They lived for something beyond themselves. And a lot of them, you know what they did? They gave up their life for someone else. And we all point to people like that and go, that's a life worth living. That's the kind of life we should pursue. See, here's something I'm learning. Following Jesus doesn't involve getting the life you've always wanted or your best life now. Following Jesus means being given a life that you would have never dreamed of asking for to begin with, beyond what you could ever ask or imagine. And here's the thing. Jesus knows this whole paradigm, this whole teaching is upside down to us. It's backwards. We don't get it. It's confusing. And so he's a good leader. And so he's going to do what good leaders do. He's going to go first. He's going to go into this painful process of initiation and he's going to show us what it looks like and he's going to demonstrate exactly what he's talking about because he knows this. He knows that if we will actually follow him, we're going to have to go into the same process he goes into. So in our countdown, we arrive on Thursday. It's a really famous day in the final week of Jesus's life. It's a lot goes down and a lot happens, but all I want to do is I want to trace what happens to three people on this day. Three people who begin the day and it's like a, a grain of wheat falling into the ground and something terrible and awful and dark and overwhelming will occur. There will be loss and I want to watch the results of those three people going into this process. We're going to look at Jesus, Judas, and Peter. And look at Jesus and two of his most famous followers. So on Thursday, Jesus and his disciples kick off this, this Passover feast with this Passover meal. And like good Jewish people, they know that that has to occur in Jerusalem. So they, they secure this hideout to have this because things have gotten really intense around Jesus. And he wants this moment to be undisturbed. And so they go to this upper room, this secret place where they know they won't be interrupted because Jesus has a lot he wants to say and a lot he wants to do. And so they prepare for this meal and they gather together into this room. And as they're gathering together into this room, preparing for this meal, the disciples, these guys have been following Jesus for a few years now, listening to every word he said. You know what they're doing in this moment? They're arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Translation, they're arguing over the seating chart. In Eastern culture, whoever sat closest to the guest of honor, in this case, Jesus, would be considered the greatest in the room and then right on down the list. And so they're actually jockeying for position. Ironically, this is exactly what Jesus has told them on more than one occasion not to do. So this is what religious guys do. They worry about their seat at at banquets and at feasts and at meals. Don't worry about that. 
And yet that's what they do. And so Jesus, being different than me, I would have just launched into a lecture or a sermon, put them all in the corner, whatever that looks like. He doesn't do that. He just gives them an object lesson. He walks over to the corner of the room and he picks up this towel and he picks up a basin of water that would have been by the door that nobody's bothered to touch. And they're all about to sit down and recline by this table. And they're all about to put their filthy, disgusting feet near the food because nobody's washed their feet. And so Jesus gets up and he does the work of a servant. He does the work of a slave gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet as they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey guys, you're getting it all wrong. You're hanging on to the wrong thing. You're jockeying for position and perceived authority is not the way to live your life. Let me show you a better way. Servanthood doesn't nullify leadership, it defines it. Watch me, watch what I do and do likewise. The way of the leader is to serve and to let go. In fact, look at what the book of John tells us, what Jesus was trying to accomplish here. Look at John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally that translates, he showed them or demonstrated the full extent of his love. So when Jesus washes their feet, he's teaching them something here, that true authority comes from a person who's willing to bleed for those he has authority over. True authority comes from a person who's willing to bleed for those he has authority over. So they sit down, they start eating after this hard lesson's been been taught once again, and here's what Jesus says. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of who he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And I I love this. It's like Simon's like, hey, hey, ask him. Ask him who he's talking about. Verse 25. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, "It it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag, and Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. It's dark now. Just symbolic of the darkness of this hour. Judas heads off to betray, and everyone's left wondering, where's he going? What's he... What's he doing? Jesus continues on with this famous meal. He passes out bread. And these guys have done this their entire life. This is their entire life. They've celebrated this meal that was so rich with symbolism. And yet Jesus adds to the symbolism in a really mysterious, complex way when he says this. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, my body is going to be broken for you. You don't get it tonight, but it's going to make sense in a few hours. Then he takes a cup, and there were four symbolic cups in the Passover meal, and he passed one of them around, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. My blood. True authority comes from someone who's willing to bleed, and Jesus is going to bleed on Friday. And this became something they didn't understand until they witnessed what Jesus was about to do. And then Jesus, in the midst of all the confusion, he starts making it even more confusing when he says, hey, I'm going to be going away for a while. You're not going to see me for a little while. And Peter doesn't like this kind of talk because they got things to do. They got plans. They got, they got nations to conquer. And so Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. 
Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus is looking at Peter going, bro, I'm about to go through something tonight and you're not going to follow me all the way through it. Later in your life, you will. But Peter, tonight, it's not going to go well for you. You're going to experience great loss tonight, Peter. Mark tells us Peter didn't buy this. He pushed even further up against Jesus. Look at this. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And look at that last phrase. And they what? All said the same. Not just Peter. They all chime in. Oh, yeah, exactly. We will ride with you. We will die with you, Jesus. We are in for this. We will stay with you no matter what. And Jesus knows it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, but he doesn't, he doesn't press further into that. It's almost as if Jesus rolls his eyes and just goes, you know what? Lesson number two, there's some things you can only learn through experience, and you're about all to learn tonight. And then Jesus launches into this really long talk and prayer, and when he's finished, they leave their secret hideout. They leave a place where no one would have found them to a place where anybody could have found them because they go to the Mount of Olives, a place they hung out all the time. Look at this. And he came out and went, and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel in heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In Jesus' darkest hour, he's literally sweating drops of blood, a condition known as hematidrosis, where your capillaries explode because of anxiety and stress. The people who just swore their allegiance to him, swore they would die with him, swore they would be with him, can't even stay awake to pray with him. This was his moment. The testing has begun. The crucible has, has that been executed. And Jesus pushes further into the pain, pushes further into the fight. Fight or flight has kicked in. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't tap. Jesus didn't quit. He showed us what it looked like to keep going into the pain. And then Judas shows up. Look at this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. A lot of people think that maybe they thought this was an, a, a cue word for an for a ambush or something like that. And they thought somebody was going to attack them. So he answered them, whom do you seek? And they said, as they're getting up off the ground, which I think is funny, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, here we go, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. He's trying to chop the dude's head off. He just has bad aim. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not walk through this suffering? Shall I not go through this process? Shall I not go through this? And I think this was the moment that Peter lost heart. I think this was the moment that Peter actually gave up. I think this was the moment where it all came crashing down, where Peter's going, wait, wait a second. Are you, I thought we were in for military revolution, and you're telling me we're not? You're telling me to put my sword away? 
I don't know if I'm in for that, Jesus. I think this is the moment that Peter loses heart. Even though he'll push a little further into this night, I think this is the moment he actually gave up the fight. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That's thousands upon thousands of angels. Hang on to that. We'll get back to it. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Look at the last sentence. Then all the disciples, what? Left him and fled. We'll ride with you. We'll die with you. We will follow you to the ends of the earth. We're prepared to die. They all left him and fled. Except for two. Except for two. John and Peter. They take Jesus to the high priest's house and John probably knew the high priest and was able to get John and Peter into the courtyard where they questioned Jesus, probably standing just a few yards away from Jesus and look at how this plays out. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house and Peter was following at a distance and when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Here we go. It's playing out just like Jesus said it would. And it gets even worse. Look at this. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And we usually stop the story right there. Worst part of it's the next sentence. Look at this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. That's heavy. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Yeah, you think? Peter has that same moment as Jesus. Do I want to quit or do I want to push further into the fight? Jesus goes further into the fight and Peter quits. He runs. He hides. He taps out. And on top of that, in his worst moment, Jesus looked at Peter. He looked right at him. In the Greek, it's the word emblepo. It means literally to lock eyes with. In his worst moment, moment of deepest shame and regret meaning if if you would have stopped the story right there and go hey Peter if you could take back one moment of your life which one would that be he would go this one this moment right here can I get a do-over on this one if there were ever a moment that Peter didn't want anybody to see and Jesus sees if there were ever a moment he didn't want anybody to know about and Jesus knows and Jesus saw it at a better level than anybody could and he knew at a deeper level than anybody could he saw Peter in his worst moment he locked eyes with him can you imagine how terrifying that moment would be and do you understand why Peter went out and wept bitterly why because he feels like such a sellout because that's exactly what he is anybody ever feel like a sellout just like I said a couple weeks ago up at West Campus good thing Jesus came for sellouts huh good thing Jesus didn't come for good faithful people because there are none they're like unicorns <laughs> they don't exist we all betray we all lose heart. We all sell out. Jesus came to make us what we could not make ourselves, to make us good and to make us faithful because we are not. Jesus locked eyes with you and Jesus locked eyes with me in our worst moment too. You know that, right? The thing that you would raise your hand and go, do over, please. Erase that tape, please. 
The thing you would go, worst moment ever, take it away. Jesus saw, Jesus knows, and he locked eyes with you. And see, here's the thing. I don't think Jesus looked at Peter in that moment, locked eyes with him, and gave him a look of disgust. Certainly wasn't a look of surprise. He told him it would happen. Jesus wasn't shocked by what Peter just did. I don't think it was a look of contempt. I don't even think it was a look of saying, I'm so disappointed in you. I think what Jesus did when he communicated, when he locked eyes with him, is he was basically saying to Peter, yeah, I'm doing what I'm about to do because of what you just did. I'm going to that cross in a few hours because of this. Because you need me to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Peter, this is why I came. How can I say all that? Eh, Because of the verses we quote around here almost every week. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came because of our worst moment. And at this point, let me, let me, let me press pause on the story. Pretend like you don't know how this ends. At this point in the story, what's the difference between Peter and Judas? Nothing. Nothing. They're both sellouts, right? Judas just made some money off of it. Peter just got safety. They decided what they wanted to hang on to instead of hanging on to Jesus. Fight or flight, they, fl- they fled. They both ran away. They both went into this dark, scary place of trial and testing, and they both lost. They both failed. But remember lesson number three, there's a lot to be gained through loss. There's a lot to be gained through loss. There's some things you can only learn through loss, but here's the key to this. You gotta stick around after the loss to find out what that is. So watch how Judas responds. We fast forward to Friday morning. Look at this. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. When they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and what? Hanged himself. Judas has the same moment as Jesus, the same moment as Peter, and Judas taps. He quits, he runs, he takes an off-ramp, he bails. And a lot of us, we haven't committed suicide, but we did the same thing a long time ago. We quit took an off-ramp, we bailed. It's just like that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. we looked at a couple weeks ago. When we die, whether that's later today, tonight, tomorrow, when we're 80, or when we're 100, that'll just be the belated announcement of a spiritual death that occurred a long time ago. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, and the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. Some of us took the off-ramp a long time ago. Something happened, something awful, something dark, something terrible, and we quit. We're stuck there. We're done. We got abused. We've been stuck there ever since. We got divorced. We can't find a way out. We got fired. Someone walked out. Someone cheated. We got addicted. Whatever it is, we've been stuck. No more change. No more growth. Just darkness. Just death. But Jesus has something else in mind and it's light and it's life. Look at Peter and we really got to fast forward for this one because after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, several days into the 40 days that Jesus walked around on this earth and interacted with hundreds of people, one of those interactions was with Peter when they had breakfast one morning and this is how it went down. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And he's not talking about sheep, he's talking about people. Take care of my people. 
said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him this third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, well, then feed my sheep. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Three. Question. Did Jesus do this for Jesus' benefit or for Peter's benefit? For Peter's benefit. This is Peter's initiation. This is his moment. We're on good authority. Jesus is telling Peter who he is. Peter, you are a man. Peter, you went into this dark and scary place and guess what? You lost and in a sense you failed but in another sense you did not fail because guess what, Peter? You are still here. You're still standing here. You're still here to learn the lesson you could only learn by going through the failure you went through. You had to go through it. Lesson number one, you go into the fight alone. You, you didn't believe me on the front end, Peter. Lesson number two, there's some things you can only learn through experience. People tell you all day, you lost while you were in that experience. Lesson number three, but there's a lot to be gained through loss. So what did Jesus give Peter in this moment? He gave him the two things every man so desperately needs, his identity and a responsibility. This is who you are, Peter. You're mine. Now, take care of my church take care of my people here's your responsibility this is Peter's initiation you know what life does this but you got to watch for it you got to pay attention to it and you got to stick in the game through it Judas didn't stick around for the most significant thing in all of human history the resurrection if the resurrection didn't happen what we're going to talk about next week We should fold up shop. We shouldn't even come here next week if the resurrection didn't happen. But if it did, guess what? It changes everything, including our perception of life itself. That's what it did for Peter. In all of Peter's writings, it's really interesting. There's a theme and it's fire. It's this fire of testing this refining fire. It's like he just can't let go of it. It's like this is the way he sees all of life now. He says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It changed Peter's perspective. Peter learned through experience, difficult, painful, terrible experience to hold on to Jesus and let go of everything else. And Jesus alluded to the fact that one day Peter was going to have an opportunity once again to betray. This time he's going to do it differently. Look at what Jesus says to Peter at this breakfast meeting. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, and it's not a question, it's not a request because Jesus is a king and kings don't ask. He says, follow me, follow me. And Peter did until the day he died. He stood before Nero 30-some-odd years later, around AD 68, the Caesar, and Caesar said to him, deny Jesus again. You've done it before. You'll just deny Jesus. I'll set you free. And Peter goes, nope, been down that road. Know where it leads. Not going to happen. Nail me to a cross. And they did. Nailed him to a cross. History tells us upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. Here's what I'm learning. Do I wish I had some sort of initiation that would have definitively told me you're no longer a boy, now you're a man? Yes. (laughs) 
probably would have saved me a lot of pain and suffering because I've been chasing being told I'm a man for a long, long time. Do I think we should reinstill initiations with our boys and with our girls of this generation? Absolutely, and I'm pursuing that, and you should too. But here's the thing. God is our Father. We gotta look beyond all this. We, we are taught to call him God on good authority by Jesus in the Bible. And God, our Father, has placed us in a scary place. It's called life. It's dark, it's painful. There's a lot of terrifying things that happen and it involves loss. Life is our initiation. Never forget, at the end of my grandmother's life, my wife Allie, and I, Allie had a miscarriage and my, my frail grandmother said to me, Scott, I wish you didn't have to go through this. I remember saying back to her, me too. (laughs) Here's the thing. We don't always choose what we go through, and we wouldn't choose it if we had the opportunity, but we can choose how we go through it. And while it's nice to have people who love us around us in the midst of painful, difficult circumstances, some circumstances you go into alone, just you and Jesus. And that's not really alone, is it? There's some things in life that can only be learned through experience and there's a lot to be gained through loss, which is a good thing because life is full of loss. To be honest with you, I feel like I lose a lot. I feel like I'm a sellout most days. I feel like I pull punches and I give up and I tap out and I'm in process just like Peter was in process and a lot of you are in process right now and here's the thing, I know there's a lot more lessons to be learned but I'm also in a place where I can confidently stand before you and say, but I do know who I am. I know who I am because my heavenly father has told me I'm his. I know my identity. I also can confidently stand before you and go, I know my responsibilities because my father's told me what I'm supposed to carry. My responsibilities are really direct and really clear and they go like this. Follow Jesus, love your wife, lead your kids, serve this church, bottom line, that's my life. You don't have to walk out of here with any less clarity than that. Your heavenly father has told you whose you are, who you are and who you belong to. You are his and he's given you a responsibility Some of your responsibilities are exactly the same as what I just listed for you. You won't do it perfectly and I won't do it perfectly, but the good news is Jesus didn't come for perfect people. He came to perfect people. He came to make us what we are not. See, here's the thing. We're about to sing a song. And I am convinced that if we actually believed the words of this song, we wouldn't be able to contain ourselves as we sang it. If we actually believed that God is the God of the angel armies, as Jesus said when he said to Peter, don't you know I could call down legions of angels if I wanted to, that he commands the angel armies and that that the God we worship, Jesus has gone into the fire ahead of us. He's gone through the process and he's conquered sin, Satan and death and he's come out the other side and he's looking back at us and going, what do you have to fear? I've taken away everything that could potentially harm you or take away your life. I have life for you beyond what you've ever asked, beyond what you've ever dreamed, beyond what you've ever imagined. So push into the pain. Don't tap out. Don't give in. Go into the fight because I'm with you. I've gone before you. I stand behind you and I surround you. If we actually believe that, we would sing this song at the top of our lungs. I'm going to sing it here in a second. Stand and pray with me. God, come before you right now. And a lot of us are in dark, dark places. God, thanks for demonstrating for us that you sent your son into a dark place for us. You brought light and life. God, thank you that you are a God who redeems and you bring life from death. And God, you take all of our painful circumstances and you use them for our good. And thank you that you're a warrior God who fights for us. 
Thank you that you're a God who goes before us and surrounds us and tramples our enemies under our feet and you take away the most scary enemy we could ever face. Death no longer has any sting because of what you have done for us and because of all of that and many more things, we worship you with all that we have right now. In Jesus' name, amen.